Hi, my name is Saul, and you're listening to The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the place in regular weekly updates. This chapter is going to try to detail one of the most exciting moments in the history of London ever. Then try to explain the background to the Magna Carta, hint at how complicated it is to try and work out the precise details of the creation of the Magna Carta, and then explain how London was to find itself in the hands of a bunch of revolutionaries. And all of this in under 40 minutes. At least that's the plan. So I'll begin by just giving you a setup as we come into this chapter. London is, politically anyway, being controlled by a faction of rich oligarchs known at the time as Eschevins. One group of these men described themselves as mercers, or merchants as we'd call them today. This title does not mean they were members of the Worshipful Guild of Mercers, London's premier livery company. That didn't exist at the time. At this point in time, the only guild in London that did exist legally was the Weavers Guild, which had been created back in 1155. Rather, London had been experiencing over the last few decades the rise of adulterine guilds, illegal alliances of businessmen of varying professions coming together to protect themselves from economic difficulties or exploit growing economic opportunities, which we covered in detail back in Chapter 80 of this podcast. When Henry Fitz Aylwin de Londonstone, the first mayor of the city, had died, his successors, Roger Fitz Allen, Serlo de Mercer, and now William Hardell, had all been members of this Mercer's group. They represent a faction who had been allied to the growing rebellion against the rule of King John of England. His capricious and untrustworthy nature, his general behaviour and his overwhelming style of rule meant that he did whatever he wanted and eroded the powers of the baronial class and made London convinced that unless they sided with the barons who opposed this, their liberties and rights would also be eroded. So they had been at the forefront of the rebellion against the king, which despite one abortive attempt to take one of his castles, had not seen any fighting. It was a political disagreement. One mayor of London had been one of the two leaders of the opposition who had negotiated with King John in the Templars' headquarters that January. And the other of the two leaders? He was a baron, all right, but he was also a baron with strong links to the Mercers, and technically he could be described as a Mercer as well due to his involvement in the wine trade. During May 2015, the king and the barons engaged in a series of political gestures, and the king had said he would allow this great big commission headed by the Pope resolve everyone's issues. The barons had responded by coming up with a proposed document to debate over, all ongoing and good, but King John had ordered two things alongside this, the seizure of the lands of the barons who opposed him, and he had ordered his bastard half-brother, the Earl of Salisbury, to reinforce the garrison in the Tower of London and kind of remind London it was his city. The mayor of London and the adulterine Mercer's faction, they had to act. Welcome then to the intense and exciting moments where London was to basically see itself stage an internal coup d'etat and start the First Barons' War. Welcome then to Chapter 84 of the story, The Barons Came to London.
So the mainstay of the first part of this episode is based on three original documents. I'm cutting out any middlemen and later historians. This episode is going to be based on the primary sources as to the events in London on the weekend of Saturday the 16th and Sunday the 17th of May 1215. One day in the life of the city. One day that changed the course of English history. The three documents I will be using are the Crowland Chronicler's account of these events, found in a document called Memorale Fratis Walteri de Coventria, the version written down by Ralph of Cogasol in Radulfi de Cogasol Chronicon Angelacum, and I'll be using extracts from the Flores Historiarum by Roger of Wendover, with additions added at the time by Matthew Paris. The three versions, while seemingly presenting differing accounts of that weekend, are actually very compatible with one another. And indeed, what I'm about to do is place all three into a single narrative version of events. Anytime you hear me quote something, I'll be quoting directly from these documents. Nothing more and nothing less. So, what did happen on the night of Saturday the 15th and the morning of Sunday the 16th of May, 1215. We know a force being led by William Longsbury was marching to hold the city. Mayor Hardle must have realised his predicament. He sends a message. The rebels need to seize the city before the king does. The Eschivans cannot hold it alone. They need the rebel troops. They send word up to Fitzwalter and his forces who were stationed in Bedford. Quote, when the aforesaid army came to the castle of Bedford, it was respectfully received by William de Bouchon, and there came to them their messengers from the city of the Londoners, secretly informing them that, if they wished, they could come quickly to the city and enter it." Unquote. After their defeat at Northampton, this news was well received by the rebel forces. Quote, the barons, buoyed up by this longed-for news, moved their camp forward to Wherry, unquote. Fitzwalter and his forces make their way to a town in Hertfordshire called Wherry, but they have an overriding military concern at this point. The Earl of Salisbury is out in the field with an army. The immediate difficulty faced by the barons is they needed to get to London, but not meet him and his forces along the way. Also, they needed a plan to take the city. Whereas London's walls were not in the best shape, the defensive ditch, which had just been constructed around the walls, would hold off any army for a while, and it would force the barons to have to fight their way in. And as had just seen in their attack on Northampton, Fitzwalter's force was not equipped for a siege, so any armed group camped outside the walls of London would then have been stuck there and prone to the forces led by the Earl of Salisbury coming up behind them. I believe at this point word was sent from Wary, or on the way there, that in order for Fitzwalter to help Hardle's people, they would need to take London without a fight. At this news, a plan was concocted, an intrigue and a scheme conceived of within the walls of London. And when it was agreed, word was sent, secretly, Hardle's people would help the barons. The operation was a go, quote, with alliances sworn with the citizens of London via go-betweens and with the Earl of Salisbury approaching the city, unquote. 
The night before, the evening of Saturday the 16th of May, London's great gates would have been locked as usual, as they always were. To do otherwise would have drawn attention to what was coming. How to get someone into the city to open the gates without a fight happening? Luckily, there was a way. The walls of London were in disrepair. Work was being done on them. Someone in the city, one of the mayor's people probably, had left ladders by the wall on the outside. They could say it was because repair work was being done and that would make sense. After all, the great dates were locked and manned and no one thought anything about those ladders. After all, it wasn't like there was a war on or anything, was there? Up in Wary, the rebel forces mustered early, when it was still dark, aiming to arrive at London at first light. Quote, after a certain time, around 500 knights set out for London, unquote. But not all of them were there. A smaller group had gone ahead, a group acting on intelligence from the mayor's faction within London. This small force arrived before the sun arose, and there, as promised, they found the ladders left against the wall. They climbed them. No guards are there to stop them or spot them. Quote, Certain of these knights, with the knowledge of not a few of the citizens, going ahead of the others, scaled the wall by means of steps that had been made for the wall's repair. Unquote. They make their way, probably with others based in the city to aid them, to Allgate, intimidate or overcome any guards there, and then unlock and open the gate. We know it was specifically this gate, as Matthew Paris added to Roger of Wendover's account of these events, saying the mainstay of the rebel forces, quote, entered the city via Allgate, unquote. And the choice of Allgate was deliberate. See, the Earl of Salisbury was coming from the west. Had the rebel army come from the north or west of the city, they could have run into him. We are never told just how close the Earl and his men got to London. But we can surmise that he got pretty close, based on the tactical choices deployed by the barons. You see, the easiest way to march from Ware in Hertfordshire to London is roughly in a straight line, marching due south, passing Epping Forest to your left. But the rebel army didn't come that way. They went around, putting Epping Forest to their right and between them and any army coming from the west, which meant they were coming to London from the east of the city, which made Allgate the gate the rebels needed to aim for. Allgate was also the gate nearest to the Tower of London, but luckily it was a distance away. If there was a garrison in the tower, they could hold out, sure, but they could not stop the rebels. All the rebels needed was a way in, and so the army approached London as dawn rose, and Allgate was open to them. And this was time to happen, as many of the city were attending mass. The timing was too perfect to just be coincidence. This was planned and executed with full military precision. Quote, This they did unbeknownst to the king's men who were within the city, or to the greater and better part of the citizenry, so it was said, unquote. The audacity, the precision, the careful planning of this operation is noted in the comments at the time 
Quote, having prepared their manoeuvres, the barons came to London and seized it without opposition, the citizens being busy at mass, unquote. By all accounts, this newly arrived force of about 500 knights, supplemented by partisans in the city, secured the place. This was a military occupation, and just as quickly, they began moving to purge opposition to the mayor within London. Quote, on Sunday morning, 17th of May, having entered, the barons captured all of the king's supporters whom they found, depriving them of their goods, unquote. They targeted the homes of the pro-royalists, arresting it, it seems, and pillaging their homes within London. The faction of the mayor were targeting their own Eskivin class, the oligarchs who held for the king or simply wished to take the king's charter offered on May 7th. The mainstay of the Londoners, however, stayed out of it, as was said of the time, quote, for the rich of the city favoured the barons, and therefore the poor feared to object, unquote. This was neighbour against neighbour, Londoner against Londoner. The violation of the sacred truce of the London Sin, whose unity had been destroyed in the sequence of events we mentioned back in chapter 75, now made this not even worthy of a comment. But the new occupation was not done yet. The newcomers then went after London's Jews. Why? The most common explanation I have seen was that the Jews had lent the king money and thus were seen as supporters of the king. That's one reason, I suppose. There were others. This force called itself the Army of Christ. It saw itself as a pseudo-crusading army. Their leader, Fitzwalter, had once suggested Simon de Montford, the hammer of the Cathar heretics, should replace John as King of England. It could be that these were just 13th century ultra-religious baronial bigots. It would make sense. This was the same class as those odious men who had attacked the Jews back at the coronation celebration of King Richard. Heck, some of these men could have been part of that group. Such men would not need an excuse to attack Jews. They would do so simply because they could do it. And by all accounts, there was no real political reason given at the time. The rendering of these events by Ralph of Coggesall was brutal with its sarcasm, and it says some of these armed men just wanted cash. Quote, They broke into the houses of the Jews, rifling storehouses and strong boxes, and having spent much time in this holy work, abundantly restuffed their own empty purses. Unquote. The impression I get here is one where Fitzwalter's armed takeover, this putsch, had worked. His men had taken London, and the supporters of the mayor had identified those who supported the king, or who just opposed them, and these had been arrested. And in a wild sense of, we're in control, elements of this force had helped themselves to take on and attack the Jewish community, without, but most probably with, the blessing of the newly arrived commanders. Still, discipline would need to be established. And we know these attacks were part of the seizure of property from London's Jews. The charter rolls of this period talk of a later grant to one William Brewer of, quote, several houses formerly belonging to Jews, including one in London that once belonged to Benedict the Jew of Milk Street, unquote. And after everything had died down in the future, the loyalist baron, William de Warin, the 5th Earl of Surrey, was granted, quote, several houses in London formerly belonging to Jews, unquote. The Knights' forces immediately placed London under a form of martial law. 
command of the city granted to the two military leaders. Quote, Robert Fitzwalter, Marshal of the Army of God and Holy Church, and Geoffrey de Mandeville, Earl of Essex and Gloucester, unquote. They realised they had to hold the city potentially against an enemy force, so sought to speed up the repairs on the walls. Quote, Vigilantly and daily reinforced the city walls with stones taken from the houses of the Jews, unquote. This operation commenced as the mainstay of their forces came up and political dissent was crushed. They could now defend the city. Quote, Having taken all potential resistors captive, they were joined by all others, so that the city was delivered into their hands with guards placed on its walls, unquote. This occupation was total. Quote, the barons placed their own doorkeepers at each of the city gates, thereafter doing as they liked with all within, unquote. They stationed their own men at the city gates. They controlled everybody and everything coming in and out of the city. London was theirs. There was an issue of the king's men who still held the Tower of London. The rebel forces now had knights to supplement them, but as we said, these knights had no siege engines, and the walls of the tower were thick. An abortive attempt to storm the tower was made, but, quote, they could not, however, take the Tower of London, defended against them by a small but brave garrison, unquote. The royalist garrison held them off, but even though the barons no longer had Baynard's Castle as a fortress of their own to use, they did hold London's third castle. Given Richard de Montefiche was named as one of the leaders of the Baron's cause in the post-Magna Carta settlement, it would be fair to assume that Montefiche Castle lay in the Baron's hands, behind the walls, and provided a fortress on the western side of the city. But ultimately, it was done. By the afternoon of that Sunday, London reeked of older times. The commanders of this new regime were the Castellan of Baynard's Castle, Fitzwalter, and someone called de Mandeville, the property of the king's supporters was plundered and the houses of the Jews being demolished and used as building materials to strengthen the city's defences. They had taken London. Now what? Well, put bluntly, this changed everything. The fall of London, quote, the capital of the crown and of the realm, unquote, was decisive. The royal administration simply broke down. Quote, Throughout England, the pleas of the exchequer and of sheriffs ceased because nobody could be found prepared to pay rent to the king or obey him in any way, unquote. Across the country, the waverers and fence-sitters amongst the barons saw this act as a clear indication of which way the wind was blowing and came over to the rebels in droves. And any who held out were threatened with war against their persons and or their possessions, quote, as soon as it became known, far and wide, that the barons had seized the royal metropolis, all, save only the earls of Warren, Arundel, Chester, Pembroke, Ferrers and Salisbury, defected to the baronial party. All, I say, day by day and in droves, defected to the army of God, so that four extremely strong armies were established in England, and the king was seized with such terror that he now dared travel no further than Windsor, unquote. Apparently, and this does become important later on in the story of London, news of this putsch reached Paris. Quote, With things proceeding in this way, the King of France sent letters assuring the barons of his constancy, solidarity, and immediate assistance, 
promising them as much support as he could supply, saving only the truces that existed between him and King John. The King of France granted that he would allow no one under his authority to go to the assistance of King John against the barons. He also sent siege engines to the barons via Eustace the monk, and if they needed it, promised to lend them copious treasure. But as for sending them the willing support of strong warriors, he prevaricated. These things became known. The king's timidity inspired rancor amongst the barons." Unquote. Any hope for foreign intervention was not forthcoming, but still, with this one act, London had tipped the balance against the king. John was a realist. It took him less than 10 days to bow to the inevitable. On the 27th of May of the year 1215, a truce between the two sides was agreed, and intermediaries were appointed to establish talks. Four days later, the king took up residence in Windsor, where, with the exception of a brief absence in early June, he remained to the end of the month. And on the 10th of June, he agreed to meet the rebels. Now, traditionally, we are told the two sides met at Runnymede. To be absolutely precise, however, the location is only ever documented as, quote, a meadow between Windsor and Staines, unquote. But we are almost 100% certain they met Runnymede. Runnymede is a meadow or mead on the south bank of the River Thames. It was also the perfect location for the meeting. It was roughly halfway between Windsor, where the king had his camp at the almost impregnable castle, and Staines, where the barons, whose principal stronghold is London, was some 20 miles east, had made their forward base. Staines, of course, was traditionally the limit of the jurisdiction of the Lord of Baynard's castle. Fitzwalter would have known that, clearly. But places between two armed camps, each bitterly mistrustful of the other, risk becoming battlefields. Runnymede was chosen precisely because it could not become a battlefield. As the surrounding land was too wet and too boggy, the two sides could not fight. They could only talk. And talk they did. And while I would love to digress into the details of what was in that first version of the Magna Carta and the full legal implications of it, I don't think I could do it justice in under an hour. More than that, it diverts from our purpose, which is telling the story of London. And as such, I'm going to return really to the opening negotiations and just talk about what was in the negotiations in brief. So here we are on the 10th of June. The rebels turned up with a list of demands, a set of articles for the king to place his great seal upon. The articles were the work of the barons and they made no bones about this fact. Now, they embodied their overwhelming concerns for the security of their lands, their widows and their heirs against John's arbitrary behaviour of money grabbing. And they gave these matters pride of place. But they were way more than just that. In fact, the articles are evidence of how quickly the political situation had changed in 1215. And more than that, they kind of testify to the collapse of the king's power. The unknown charter, which had been the basis for the last set of talks, contained only a dozen concessions they demanded from the king. The articles multiplied this figure fourfold. There were 48. The king was on the back foot now. 
and the barons could smell blood and had gone after more. And London and William Hardell showed their importance to the cause by the fact that the biggest difference between the Unknown Charter and the Articles was just how well they did out of the demands. The Articles offered guarantees of the liberties of London and freedom of trade and navigation on the Thames and Medway rivers. They also promised for reform weights and measures throughout the kingdom, London measures, as the later Magna Carta called them, to become the standard. And not forgetting, of course, standard measurements of wine for Fitzwalter's friends amongst the Vinters. One thing that stands out from these articles is what they don't mention. Despite Fitzwalter's grandiose title of Marshal of the Army of God and Holy Church, the articles make no mention whatever of the rights of the church, and they try very clearly to keep the Holy Father out of English politics. Nope, the Pope stays out of this. And with him, the church as well. English politics, according to these articles, was in the hand of secular powers, which really, in this, this century and time, meant men with swords. King John, he had to go along with this, supposedly. But as Matthew Paris said at the time, quote, at this time, concealing his hatred against the barons beneath a smooth countenance and plotting his revenge, unquote. But the king placed his seal upon the articles, and these were taken back to London by the barons' negotiators. Not surprisingly, given the king's notorious unreliability, some of the barons refused to accept even the sealed document as proof of the king coming around to their way of thinking. Divisions began within the rebel side, and these do become important later on. Most of the rebels, however, did accept these articles, and this started the process on June 10th, which carried on towards the actual signing of the Magna Carta. Now, at this point, I should alert you to a debate. It's a heck of a debate about when we say the Magna Carta was actually issued. For many, the date is June the 19th, 1215, when the king met up with the barons and he signed off on everything and the two sides declared peace and all was good. However, there is a disagreement about this. Some advocate that the Magna Carta was signed on June 15th and on June 19th there was a meeting formally to just to declare peace between the two sides. For many historians, some of the more learned experts in this field, even if the document says John approved it on the 15th, it would be incredible for them to think he would have signed off on it before peace was established. Therefore, they feel we can dismiss the 15th and focus on the 19th. I am, however, somewhat of an advocate of the position of one Professor David Carpenter, who says that the Magna Carta was all agreed upon by June 15th. Yes, it's a minor issue. Yeah, I figured you should be aware of it. That meeting on June 15th, however, could best be described as the historian David Starkey described it as a, quote, plenary session, unquote. This was how they were going to thrash out what the final agreement would be. Now, again, I must tread carefully here. I will say what you're hearing is the opinion of a historian who is not a specialist in the details of the Magna Carta. And as such, it is beholden unto me to say to you, dear reader, that this next bit is my story version of what happened. Trust me when I say the issue is debated heavily, and no way do I claim what follows is 100% the truth, just a simple and easy-to-digest version. This plenary session is where the king and the rebels thrashed out the Magna Carta. The document, with all its concessions, were committed down and agreed upon. The king really had no choice. 
As well as that, an oath was sworn, a collective oath, the king for his part and the barons for theirs. The king said that he would issue the Magna Carta and keep to it, and the barons that they would re-swear fealty to him in return. However, the argument goes, and it's not without its critics, that not all was well in the rebel camp. The Crowlin Chronicler records that certain elements of the rebel forces based up north across the River Humber, under the pretext that they had not been present at Runnymede and thus had not in, been embraced by the peace agreed there, resumed hostilities against the king. These guys were dissatisfied with the deal struck, and actually you can see why. This new charter virtually ignored the demand to reduce the baronial relief from £100 to 100 marks, and it did not concede the barons would have any control over the royal castles, and it backed down on preventing John from appealing to the Pope. There were elements within the rebels who wanted to hold out for these things. The argument goes that in giving away these points, the negotiators with the king deeply disappointed several of the great crowd of barons and knights encamped at Runnymede. The likes of Fitzwalter, Fitzgeoffrey de Mandeville, and the mayor of London certainly were powerful, but they could not simply dictate to the others in their alliance. As it was, John had to make more concessions, including firing his new chief justicar, Peter Desroshi, and agreed to the reform of local government. Once John had made these concessions, however, it was enough and a deal was struck. On the 19th of June, the king and his barons met once more at Runnymede. The meetings before had been very formal and often very tense. The meeting of the 19th was filled with formal high ceremony. Earlier in the year, when negotiations for the Charter had broken down, the barons had renounced their allegiance to the king. Now, with this confirmation of the Charter guaranteed as surely as God and man could make it, the barons renewed their fealty. The king wore the imperial robes and regalia of his grandmother, the Empress Matilda. The barons knelt and swore individually, peace in our time. The rebellion had won, London had won, the Magna Carta was signed. Of course, no one really trusted King John. Everyone was aware of the great danger that once the king was away from Runnymede, he would renege on the charter on the grounds that it constituted a illegitimate infringement of his authority. And then he'd go hire himself some mercenaries and start the whole ball game again. And to counter this very fear, the rebels had come up with a unique and powerful solution. The infamous Clause 61 of the Magna Carta, the Security Clause. According to this, King John conceded that, quote, the barons shall choose any 25 barons of the realm as they wish, who with all their might are to observe, maintain, and cause to be observed the peace and liberties which we have granted, unquote. So, if there were any infringement of the terms of the new charter by the king or any of his officials, this would be passed unto this committee of 25 knights, and if within 40 days no remedy or redress had been offered to the committee, then the king empowered the full committee to, quote, distrain and distress us in every way they can, namely by seizing castles, lands, and possessions, unquote, until he made amends. This was truly revolutionary. 
Here we see the Charter introduce the unique idea of the Kingdom sanctioning and instituting armed action against none other than the King himself. The means by which they sought to achieve this was actually the use of a common law doctrine of distrain, the means by which debts were collected from debtors and people were obliged to answer for their actions in court. Think about it. For the first time, the kings of England have to answer to somebody. The question is often asked, by the way, why did they choose 25 knights and not eight knights like John's proposed committee to negotiate out the problems a few months before? Now, I've seen many solutions offered to this very question. For some, the solution was that with 25, the barons would have an odd number. That way, if they ever had a vote on things, there'd never be a split. Another explanation, the more obvious one, is that 25 were chosen to reflect the diverse factions within the group. Several of them were based up north, others from within London, you know. And also, while mystical solutions may seem trite to us now, biblical references mattered to people of this time. And here, 25 takes on a whole new significance. It was the age at which God instructed Moses to permit the Levites to be consecrated to God's service. It was the age many of the kings of Judea had come upon to the throne. And it also represented the law squared in the sense that there are five books of Moses and five books of the New Testament. Of course, for the purpose of this podcast, if someone to ask me... Why the rebels picked 25 men to oversee the new charter? The answer is way more obvious. And given London's role in all of this, the centrality of the city to the rebellion, this explanation would commend itself to me. The court of aldermen of the city of London was made up of 25 members. For this narrator, this body of 25 may have been the number that the barons drew from their most immediate inspiration. This was ultimately to be the hustings court of the Magna Carta. It's my theory. So who were these 25 men? Well, rather than state them all, it's worth noting that several of them were names we've met before in the last few episodes. There was Geoffrey de Mandeville, Earl of Gloucester. You've got Sir de Quincey, the Earl of Winchester. Eustace de Vesci, the noble who had fled with Fitzwalter back in 1212. You've got Richard de Montefice, and of course, Robert Fitzwalter. And included in those barons, William Hardle, Mayor of London, Mercer and wine merchant. The man who had basically instigated all of this. And London was in an incredible position. The rebels were to retain possession of the city. They would not lightly give it up. The political agreement between King John and the rebels spelled out their conditions in careful, pedantic detail. Quote, Within the agreed term, that is by 15th of August, the oath to the 25 was to have been administered throughout England. Local commissions of 12 knights were to have been sworn in to investigate misconduct by sheriffs and abuses in forest law, and the king was to have met all claims against him for the restoration of rights and property, whether admitted by him or adjudicated by the 25, unquote. All this, of course, established not only conditions, but a timetable, a brutally tight one at that. King John had two months exactly from the Runnymede Agreement of 15th of June 
to the deadline of 15th of August to fulfill the initial basic requirements of the Magna Carta. Otherwise, the loss of both the city and the Tower of London, which was placed into the keeping of the Archbishop of Canterbury, risked becoming permanent. In many ways, it's really strange. When you look at the events in May to June of 1215, what you see is an incredibly quick collapse of royal power, faster even than the collapse of the regime of Ethelred Undred. In that case, London had stood firm behind their king, and with that act alone had kept him in power for, for months anyway, and by their later singular support of his son Edmund, they'd allowed Ironside's function as a legitimate claimant. But here, London had turned against the king, and in doing so, they rapidly sped up the collapse of John's regime. For me, seeing things from a London point of view, the events of these few months throw the city into a cold, mercurial light. Here it does appear that William Hardle and his Mercer faction were a driving force behind much of what had just happened. It was they, fearing the arrival of the King's forces, who invited Filts Walter's forces to come to London. They who facilitated these forces' entry into the city. It was they who were the collaborators behind the walls who had allowed the putsch takes place and would have been the ones who gave the names of their opposition within the city who were then seized. And because they had done all of this, it was they who led to the taking of London and Westminster and the collapse of John's regime in all but name. And this then led to the incredibly enhanced position of the barons, which in turn led to them running the table in negotiations and dictating to John the brutal terms of the Runnymede settlement. And here we are, because all of this led to the creation of the Hustings Court of England, the 25 men who basically now run the country, a power over the king, with strict conditions that if John had not implemented his group's demands in just eight weeks, London became theirs forever. This was a London we have never seen before. This was a London militant. It's like the passions of William Fitzosbert, that great rebel, were given a citywide cause. Of course, this was not done in his cause. This was not London acting on behalf of its people or the poor. Indeed, the Mercer faction of London represented a small class of the citizens of London. The poor residents, the overwhelming population, were keeping their heads down all the time. But London was now firmly in the hands of these rebels, and its mayor was now one of the 25 who sat on the body in control of the whole country. A unique position. No other civic leader held this role. No other civic leader was invited to sit upon the 25. No other could claim such authority. Nothing says to me how crucial London was to the rebellion than that simple and yet, since we know that England was never run by a committee of 24 barons and a mayor of London, we know that this political arrangement was not to last. That everything was going to come falling down and that civil war, what is called the First Barons' War, is just about to break out. And what London does during that conflict is actually even bigger than what it's just done. And I'll cover that next episode. As we described the one time London decided to bankroll the invasion of England and tried to place a foreigner on the throne. Thanks for listening, and I really do hope you enjoyed this episode. It was great fun to write. 
The story of London only exists due to listener support, and I would like to gratefully thank those supporters I do have who have kept us going for another month. Thank you. If you find this podcast entertaining, and if you can help, you can support it via the membership page over on the Buy Me A Coffee website, or you can use it just to make a one-off contribution. If you don't have the funds or don't wish to do that, then simply giving it five stars or leaving a positive written review would be amazing because it does improve the algorithms. We're back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Bye.